Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Talk. This is Matt Zuckerman, Toxicology Fellow at the UMass Division of Toxicology. I want to thank everyone who's listening and everyone who participated in our online contest to win a copy of the Lang Poisoning and Overdose book by Kent Olson. The contest, in case you missed it, was available on our Facebook and Twitter feed at ToxTalk, T-O-X-T-A-L-K, and we were trying to get listeners to see if they could guess who our celebrity guest would be, who we were interviewing. We got some great suggestions, great guesses great suggestions for future shows to interview. Unfortunately, nobody guessed right as to who we were interviewing, and so we'll have to figure out who to send that copy of the Kent Olson book to, although uh, if you don't have it, I recommend it. It's a good reference. And for future contests and future updates, feel free to check out our Facebook and TalksTalk Twitter feeds. But I'm very pleased that our guest interviewees for today are none other than the founders and current directors of the Arrowwood Center and the Arrowwood website. They go by Earth and Fire Arrowwood. And uh, for this episode, we are lucky enough to interview them. Now, this is a great opportunity to talk to people who are involved in our field in medical toxicology, but who are not classically trained uh, medical toxicologists. They definitely are are, uh, providing a valuable and different viewpoint. And I think as I did, uh, there were certain parts of the conversation that I agreed with more or less than others, but it was really actually surprising and nice to see how much overlap there was to see uh, between the two viewpoints from somebody coming from a, a classically or a medical toxicology uh, physician, allopathic viewpoint, and, and definitely two people who have really spent a lot of time trying to educate others about the effects of particular drugs. And so that's one of the great things about doing the show is is we get to hear from people that we wouldn't always get to talk to. So I'm sure that some of you have been on that site. I highly recommend checking it out, Arrowid, E-R-O-W-I-D, and then maybe wondered where it came from and, and who runs it. So this is a great opportunity to do so. Now, we actually ended up talking for uh, quite a while on this interview. There was just so much to cover, and so it became kind of lengthy. So rather than uh, tiring you too much, we're actually going to chop this interview into two parts. So this is the first part of a two-part interview, the interview with Earth and Fire Arrowwood. And then you, know, you can catch the, uh, the second part on another segment, another show, just to keep this in digestible uh, bits. So without any further ado, uh, here is the interview. Matt Zuckerman from UMass Toxicology. I'm uh, just trying to reach, I guess, Earth and Fire Arrowwood? You've reached Earth and Fire Arrowwood. <laughs> Very good. Great. Hi. Thank you both for, for being available. I wanted to have the chance to talk to you because uh, I understand that you are the uh, bright minds behind the Arrowwood website. 
Yes, we're the, we're the two co-founders of the site. I'm Fire, and, and Earth is, is the male voice you're hearing. We started the site together uh, in 1995. Okay, yeah, so that's 18 years yeah, now. 18 years now, <laughs> yep. And it's been, for those out there that aren't familiar with the Arrowhead website, I'm sure you, actually, how would you describe it? It's an online library about psychoactive drugs. We focus on more kind of the psychedelic range, cannabis and pathogens like ecstasy um, and sort of newer drugs, but we also cover things like pharmaceuticals and herbs and smart drugs. What we don't primarily focus on are the the drugs covered most often by other references, which are the opiates and some of the uh, methamphetamine or you know the the right. more traditional basic hard drugs are are less our our expertise. Okay, yeah, and it's I have to say it's it's a great site. If anyone who hasn't checked it out should check it out. It's very informative, and I mean as a medical toxicologist, it's very nice because it's almost like a medical text in a way. I mean everything is broken down in kind of a hierarchy. And there's a there's definitely an approach to systemically approach the different drugs and even a certain amount of moderating in terms of trying to keep things relevant, it seems like. That is certainly our goal. One of the things that is not often known by everybody is that is that the site is all edited and reviewed information. There is no it is not a forum. It's not there is no ability for the public to come and just post something on the right. website. We, we used to have a guest book, but even that's been taken down for a, dec- <laughs> a decade now. You know, it's probably one of the most common uh, misunderstandings of, of the work is that it's referred to as a forum um, and grouped with other forums online, which makes some sense uh, because people do submit information that we then review and, and publish, including firsthand experience reports, which is sort of the most forum-y stuff that we publish. But, but everything has been read by an editor and approved for publication prior to publication. And I think that's definitely, if you're familiar at all with the variety of sites in terms of some of the bulletin board sites versus other sites, you can definitely get a sense that what's posted is is moderated to try and keep it relevant, but also try to avoid maybe extreme views that aren't the general view. It reminds me a lot of um, what I use a lot is micromedics, which is a, it's kind of a pharmaceutical formulary for different drugs, and it's got dosages and side effects and adverse effects. And it's probably the closest thing I've ever seen to that for sort of non-pharmaceuticals. So how would you, I guess the term illicit substances might be um, marginalizing. What? How would you, you would describe them as psychedelic substances or? Psychoactive. Psychoactive. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, big, the, uh, the highest level umbrella term that we use is just sort of psychoactive. And, and we're really, part, part of the, the reason for the way that we frame things is that we kind of see a lot of uh, arbitrary lines that get drawn between pharmaceutical drugs or recreational drugs on the basis of whether the, the use is approved or not. And it's, it's kind of, it's actually, it's one of the most difficult things to talk about in, a, in kind of the current political and legal context that anytime one starts to make the distinction about uh, why people use things or how people use things and or what the harms are or what the benefits are it, it, it becomes very political very quickly and so you get sort of set on one side or the other sort of whether you're kind of pro-drug or anti-drug in some in some capacity so we, we try to to look at at the broad category of psychoactive drugs which we would define as as drugs which have a noticeable effect on the thought process the way one thinks the way one acts and behaves and treat them all the same, regardless of legal stature, whether they are prescribed or not prescribed, whether they are being used medicinally or 
through for a spiritual religion, right. religious right. purpose, or whether it's for recreational use, or whether it's for whatever reasons. I think that's no, that's definitely true, and I think the the flip side to that is that's also when we see traditional pharmaceuticals, some of the ADHD medications with amphetamine properties. I mean, traditionally, in particular dosages, there's there's an argument that they help children in school or help people focus. However, we also know that when combined with other agents or when taken in amounts that aren't recommended, people have either recreational or other effects. Right. And so. Yeah, we often like to label things as good or bad, legal or illegal. But I think, actually, I think one of the commonalities between the way that you're approaching the substances and the way that a toxicologist approaches the substances is it doesn't really matter about the law. The real question is, what is the effect on the person? And so, so how did, so what prompted that? I mean, was there, in terms of putting it together and putting it out on the web back in 95? Well, we, you know, I mean, I think that for people of sort of our age and older, was fairly familiar. I think it's slightly different for people who are sort of younger and grew up with a fairly advanced web, but people who are in their 40s or later, when you went to college, you pretty much got exposed to a whole new variety of psychoactive drugs that maybe weren't available. To I, I, When I went to college, the first week of college, I was offered um, ecstasy, uh, mushrooms, uh, LSD, cannabis, um, I'd never tried any of those things, and pretty much it it all scared me, right? I was, you know, I was told in high school that um, all those things would destroy my brain, and so it seemed very strange to me that that we that I was put in the position of making all of these decisions on the basis of recommendations from my elders, who in those cases were people who were 20 years old, um, and so that was that that was sort of a disconcerting kind of thing to have happen uh, going off the college. And it was difficult to find actual if one was the sort of person to want to actually look up what recorded data there was about dangers or or risks or doses or, or benefits. That was very difficult to find in 1995. Uh, you could try to go to the library at the school and look up drug-related books, and you might find something by Leary, or you might find something, you know, you know there were there were a couple of books you could, you know, one, one of the, you know, things that we often sort of joke about is that, you know, one of the options was, well, do you order a book through interlibrary loan about drugs when put, you're, put you're 18? Your and, put it on your college ID, you know. <laughs> yes. uh, you know yes. it, it, was, it was, you know, so that that's sort of the where we came from in terms of, in 95, we were, we'd been out of college for a couple of years, and, and it seemed like looking into the data it seems like so it should start somebody should be collecting that and making it available to there other were, people there were other sites at the time and we were sort of participating in groups of sort of discussion and archiving it was sort of a more of an archiving project of taking stuff that was pre-existing and and collecting it for personal and kind of uh, community yeah academic community interest um i mean we were more focused on kind of traditional use kind of ayahuasca and kind of history focused both of us are sort of History, culture, culture, history, culture, culture anthropology, whatever. Um, uh, and so that was more the original focus, was more kind of the spiritual traditional use stuff. And then pretty quickly uh, it became obvious that, that we were actually, although we had initially kind of started the project as a site for more advanced users, people who were sort of like academic, academic interest level, um, people willing to read papers and articles and things like that, we moved quickly to providing more basic information because some of the absolute basics of sort of what the dose was that people actually used of ecstasy wherever was not super easy to find. How did you see the site evolve over time sort of in terms of responses to audience demands or, or change in the particular psychedelics that were 
or, or sorry, psychoactive substances that were that were used at the time. Well, I would say that you know what Earth was just describing is is one of the is one of the very large changes that happened over time is that is that it became clear that the very basic information needed to be there before to, to provide context for the rest of the the more advanced data that we might be interested in in talking about. What if we were talking about the Central American use of peyote, one would want to first have the ability to actually have the data available to everybody who was looking at that about what that was, what what the doses were, what the what the what the effects of the substance are. You, you know, you have you have to have the basics before you can talk about anything anything beyond the basics. And so, we definitely had to back up and and fill in. There was uh, there was not in '95 or '96, '97. There was not a, a Wikipedia that you could easily just sort of point people at that that reliably could sort of answer basic questions like that. So, so I would say that that's, that's one of the zones, but I, I would also say that we've developed a, a better understanding and, and I would, over time as to who the audience is for the information, and I think that the audience has, has changed and grown some over time. So while we were initially in, in, the, in the very early years targeting more advanced interest, you know, higher, higher education you know, level uh, college students or, or graduate students, over time we have realized that, in fact, a lot of high school students are, are, are looking up information and right. also a lot of toxicologists and, and physicians and, and... Right, we've decided, we've, because we're, we're a very small project organization and a uh, very small organization and so we need to leverage the, the work that we do and, and kind of focus on things. We, we, we don't go in for kind of lower grade, younger targeted... We aren't um, targeting high school students. Um, targeting, targeting younger people because it really requires a totally different kind of uh, voice, voice, and presentation to be able to uh, provide information to really young people, and so we're really pr- looking for people who are sort of college students level or kind of advanced, advanced high school or higher. And so, but we, but knowing that we have that we do have a high school audience of some size, part of what we need to do is make sure that our information is not misrepresenting things. That would be misunderstood by high school students because we we have you know right. probably probably the the main main thing that's kind of always running through our head as we're as we're uh, doing our work is that the primary people who initiate contact with or try, try new substances are people who are sort of in the 17 to 25 range, and there are people who are older than that or younger than that who are who are trying out new substances, but that's the vast vast majority of people who are actually experimenting with psychoactive drugs. It seems like there's definitely reading online reference sections similar to yours. There can be uh, different viewpoints and different aims and goals. And it seems like you're sort of initially approaching it from a very ethnocentric or kind of sociologic approach to the substances and how they're used and trying to approach particular effects on the brain. The flip side to that is, while it's not universal, it seems like certainly there are a large number of especially younger people who are kind of maybe just looking to get high. One of the things I would say about that is that that as the internet and web have become sort of ubiquitous and and available to everyone, it, it's a problem everyone has, and we, I think, became pretty comfortable pretty early with the idea that our goal was to present factual information that we didn't have a problem with anybody accessing because we were able to stand behind it as as true as we were able to get it to be and that that real reliable information is not something that should be hidden from people and that 
if that's going to be accessed by high school students as well as, as 80-year-olds and, and professionals and, and parents and everybody, that's, that's okay. It's definitely that's one, one, of the, one of the kind of the primary complications in the work that we've done is the, is the, is the different communities that people have actually create barriers of you know, information transmission intentionally that the police don't think that the, that the kids should have access to information and the kids are trying to hide from their parents and the police and, and um, medical people have a kind of a different take on that and sort of like how that information is distributed. And, and actually different countries seem to have different kind of medical cultures in terms of toxicology and the way that they relate to publishing information about street drugs and street drug use. But we actually are kind of take hits from all sides on that, that in a lot of ways there is a substantial subculture of kind of the people who use recreational drugs or people who use who take antidepressants or take pain medication there's actually a lot of different ways that people relate to that in a way like the kind of the mainstream con- mainstream issue is is kind of some substantial people number of people who take pain medications feel guilt about taking about needing to take pain medications where there are other people who are sort of much more open about their use and willing to talk about it. There's a lot of people who, like, some people are happy to talk about their use of Viagra, and some people are never, ever, ever going to mention it to anyone. And so there's a, you know, we've got a, we've got a fairly complicated problem in terms of talking about the way that people interact with psychoactive drugs and, and who is willing to disclose and what the demographics are and what, how that skews the information that, that gets provided. And yet, yet I think one of the universal things uh, is that, a lot of people think that, that it's reasonable for they themselves to have access to all of the information that's available about psychoactive drugs because they are a reasonable person, of course, but that other people should not have access to that information, whether that's because those people are going to misuse it and, and use drugs that they shouldn't use or whether that's because the, the police shouldn't hear about the new drugs that are available and, and so ruin, they, right. they, they ruin the markets for the, for the kids or, or whatever. It's not at all uncommon to have people think that, that somebody else shouldn't have it but it's okay for them to have it, and that happens on all sides. Yeah, being a physician, I, I can definitely identify with that with that viewpoint. Yep. Um, but um, so actually, yeah. So your it seems like your site and your approach, and even your willingness to do this interview. Thank you very much. Is and your talks and and history. You you try to work with all parties. It seems like, and you definitely work with I guess people quote unquote from the system. Have you ever faced pushback from? groups or supporters of psychoactive substances who felt like you were too conservative or too kind of ruining the party for people by exposing something to either the police or something else. It seems like you, you imply that sometimes there was some pushback. I think that we've gotten pushback from, from both sides, from all sides, from multiple sides. But uh, the, the answer to that is definitely yes. yes. We received direct and specific private and public negative feedback about exposing... Being too conservative or being too crazy being too, right. you know, publishing too, too much or we're not too enough. Freak, we're uh, too freaky for the straights and we're too too normal for the for the freaks. And, I mean, that, we definitely have that issue. But we're, but we're reasonably comfortable with that also. I think that that's, we, we consider that to be our, the organizational, the, the value of the organization is in large part in being in the middle and publishing for everyone and getting everyone to be working off of a shared data set and not prioritizing one side or the other, yet working with all sides because one of the things that we, we try to describe to people is that we can't know what's going on on the streets without talking to the people who are using psychoactives, and we can't communicate the important information from the user side to the professional side 
without talking to the users, but we also can't communicate the other direction, harm reduction information, information about what the latest research is and what the medical issues are without talking to the professionals. So being in the middle is where we feel like we can do the most good. The, one of the, like an example of a kind of a really problematic place that we're often, have been for a long time in is, is with new drugs is when, when do you first publish about new drugs, right? When do you first, when should we, when should, when should arrow it? When should, when should a reasonable person start telling their children or at least not, not hiding the books or whatever, not, not creating web filters that disallow the child from finding out about the new drugs. So something comes out, people start using it, people start posting the forums about it, people start writing about it. You know, at some point, like if you go on national television, right, and, and you and every channel says there's this great new drug that all the kids are using, don't use it, don't use it, right? That that will prompt a substantial number of people to go out and try the thing, right? Oh yeah, I think that definitely that definitely that was documented happening. I think in Germany when some of the synthetic cannabinoids were first coming out, and there was a new story kind of warning of their danger, which is a great way to get young people to try something new. Right. It is not our goal to be advertising the latest and greatest drugs to the world, but it's also at some point when people are using a substance on the streets, then there needs to be information available to those people. The, and so those, the, you know, and it's hard, it's hard to provide just the people who happen to have purchased the whatever some random new drug online. You know, to only get, they get the information. Only, only they get the information. That, that also seems a little bit weird and suspicious. Right. And so people should have dose information. People should have medical interaction information if that's available. People should have, you know, sort of what the, you know, whether it's a stimulant or a depressant. Ideally, emergency room uh, doctors and toxicologists, people in poison control centers would have access to the most up-to-date, most reliable information. And I don't know a better way to generate that currently than what we're doing. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And you kind of alluded to this before when you talked about you know, having to talk to people who aren't willing to be open or honest about things. I very rarely walk up to somebody and say, hi, I'm a medical toxicologist. I'd like to know what substances you're using lately so I can better understand them and treat patients. Right. You just, you don't get an honest answer. Right. And that's one of the great things about the internet in terms of some public postings is right. the anonymity has allowed some people to be a little more candid yep. with um, their use. I think I appreciate the site because it does provide an interface between parties that don't necessarily talk to each other. Do you feel like that's changed, that's altered a little bit, like the idea of an online presence, an anonymous online presence that people are more candid with, maybe descriptions of what they're using or how they're using? Sure, that. of course. I, I think that, that you know, we, we have over the last 18 years now been able to collect, I think this week we might hit 100,000 experience reports personal descriptions written up and submitted to Arrowhead about people's you know, individual experiences with, with some particular psychoactive drug. It's 100,000 people who have been willing to submit relatively anonymous reports of their use. That clearly didn't happen, um, you know, 20 years ago. Great. So when we were preparing for the interview, I asked some of my colleagues, you know, questions that they would like to ask you or that they were considering, because we went over kind of the, the mission statement just for the listeners out there. I think I got this straight from the website, is that Arrowhead is a member-supported organization providing access to reliable, non-judgmental information about psychoactive plants, chemicals, and related issues, working with academic, medical, and experiential experts to develop and publish new resources, as well as improve and increase access to already existing resources and maintain a historical record for the future. It seems like the basis for Arrowhead on some level is the idea that information is good and that providing information to people is an inherent good and that that allows people to make better choices. Right. Is there any any view, so, I mean, that's a very kind of libertarian approach in some respects. Is there any drugs or any choices that should be limited for public safety that, that information is not the key to? 
Well, I think I, the first thing that I think we should state here is that Arrowwood is not a policy organization. We are a library and an educational organization, and so the organization itself does not attempt to propose what policy should be. That doesn't mean that we don't have opinions about it, but it's a really complicated field, and it's not at all an easy answer. One, I think one of the, one of the thing, the most important thing is is to think towards the future. It seems clear to most people that the, the policies related to psychoactive drugs over the last hundred and some years have not been the most optimized, best thing for all humanity. And it seems as if we are hoping for an improved policy future around recreational drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, et cetera. And so what we believe is that there needs to be better information in order to inform the, those future policy decisions. So as far as sort of limiting people's behavior, I mean, of course, we are all in favor of stop signs. We're, we're completely in favor of the idea, of, we support the idea that everyone's choices need to be uh, in relationship to the people around them and, their, and, and the society. So it's not, you don't, you don't get... It's not just a free-for-all. Uh, right. Everybody, it, it doesn't really work for everybody to just do whatever they want whenever they want. There are society rules. That, that all makes perfect sense. What those should be is, is a complicated question. I think that to, very specifically in answer to your question, it seems, yes, there are drugs that are extraordinarily dangerous, and, and we would rather people not use those drugs compared to something else. There are behaviors and things that people shouldn't do generally. How to define what those are is not exactly our zone, but we think that those decisions will be made better. We, the, hope, yeah. we hope that those decisions will be made better with better information available. I think that's an honest answer. And I think it's difficult, too. It's interesting because I feel like there's a certain difference in terms of generation and time with both the type of psychoactive substances that are available, their strength, their potency, their effects, right. and also how people use them. And especially in recent times of just a number of new agents coming out that are, I mean, I think uh, people that used 30 years are just saying, oh, my God, this is not your grandfather's marijuana yep. right. in a way or, or something else. Well, it's one of the biggest problems with the current set of policies and, and implementations that is going on that basically is, is a, a direct predictable outcome from prohibition is from the prohibition of, from the, the way of regulating the, these behaviors has been to try to make is basically to use the penalty of criminal law. And so new drugs are all basically going to be scheduled, right? If they're, if they're any fun at all, people start using them, they'll, they'll get controlled and they'll be prohibited. And that creates this, this evolutionary pressure towards more potent drugs and newer drugs, because if they're more potent, you can fit more into a container, space. <laughs> into a smaller space to, to go between borders, go across borders. And if you have a new drug, it's harder to detect. It's harder to, to it's not necessarily illegal, right? So there's, there's this evolutionary pressure towards new, more potent drugs that it seems like an obviously negative outcome for, for the society, right? That we, we would actually rather have people using uh, well known, less potent, more known, right? Less known, known drugs, so that there's. I mean, one of the reasons that caffeine isn't super, super dangerous for the society is that we have it in relatively low dose format, so that you can kind of overdose on your coffee at Starbucks, but you're not going to die, right? But if instead at Starbucks they were just selling, you know, sort of bags of powder, bags of powder, right? If they were just selling a, you know, 10 gram bag, uh, they'll probably start doing that next week. But yes. <laughs> Occasionally, somebody would take the whole 10 gram bag and then they die, and and that's um, or that's where we're at. That's kind of where yeah. we're at with with kind of the new recreational drugs is that or any not, let's call them new recreational drugs. A lot of a lot of the recreational drugs is that 
people are buying the 10 gram bag and the dosages are in the milligram or 10 milligram range and they don't know what they have they don't know what they have and it's you know no, that's that's definitely been a tragic outcome in, in numerous cases. I think I was reading recently about, I think, in Australia, there was uh, a number of people thought they were getting, I think ecstasy is the classic thing where a lot of people think they're getting MDMA, and then sometimes there's PMA or something else in it, which yeah. which has log difference in typical dosage and effects, and that can lead to kind of some adverse outcomes. So do you feel like some of the newer agents that are coming out, some of the synthetic cathinones and synthetic cannabinoids, are uh, more dangerous than some of the traditional stuff? Well, I think that you can you could make the argument that simply by being less well understood, they are more dangerous. Now, I don't think that kind of holds all of the water, but I think that there's a strong argument to be made that if I were choosing what people were smoking in dorm rooms, I would probably choose cannabis over some random chemical they bought off the internet. But I don't know that I don't I mean. The main dangerous the sheer volume of new chemicals, I think, makes the answer to your question have to be yes to some degree. I mean, there are clearly more dangerous new drugs. There are new. There are a number of new drugs that are more dangerous than this, the standard traditional drugs of the, of the 80s. If, you, if you're going to name LSD, mescaline, psilocybin, mushrooms, uh, cannabis, ecstasy, ecstasy. You know, if you, if you name the, you know, methamphetamine, heroin, and you know, you know, something else, that some of the new drugs are clearly more dangerous than than what they are replacing. Right. One of the weird effects of kind of the last 20 years, 30 years, is that there was this long period kind of from the late 60s until basically 2000 where the DEA had failed to dismantle the LSD manufacturing and distribution system that had been set up in the 60s, that there was a group of people and a number of different groups of people who had been producing LSD and putting it on the blotter and distributing it internationally. And in 2000, basically that kind of ended, right? They, they, the DEA successfully busted a group of people and dismantled some of the network. And one of the unpleasant side effects of that, even if you're in favor of dismantling the international LSD trade, is that now what comes on blotter can be a wide variety of different substances, and there's actually kind of less acid around. And so we don't really know. People who take what they think is acid or LSD, they're probably often taking some of these super potent new drugs, which then, again, people in uh, your field, sort of people who have to deal with the kind of medical outcomes of of that are... are Confronted by not right. not knowing what people have taken and not knowing what, what the real dangers are and why I mean, why hospitalizations are happening. And, right. You know, I mean, I, you know, I think that the kind of the traditional information for sort of how to deal with somebody who was way too high on acid was basically sort of keep them calm, you know, probably give them some benzos and, mm-hmm. and either strap them down or put them in a room. And I don't know that you get to make that. I don't tell you tell me, but it seems like you're now in a position where you can't really rely on, on sort of somebody who's, who seems to be in a psychedelic freakout. You can just sort of, you know, kind you of pat, pat, pat them on the head and giggle behind their back, you know, um, uh, while they go through their unpleasantness. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. I mean, with some of the new agents, we're we're worried about potency, and I mean, especially when some of the synthetic cannabinoids came out, and people were just expecting pot that wouldn't show up on their talk screen, but really right. were getting. I mean, everyone was sure it was PCP mixed into it. So definitely there's that, and you don't know how sick people are going to get. People are getting muscle breakdown and rhabdomyolysis and kidney failure. And then the other thing is uh, also because these agents are just so mysterious both in 
exactly their nature and where they're coming from. First of all, even discovering that the synthetic cannabinoids were an artificial agent sprayed on to otherwise right. Uh, right. herbs. And uh, and then, I mean, it, it, it's interesting because it ties into the whole idea of, which is the bane of my existence, which is the idea that natural is safe. And so anything that's right. a um, nutrient supplement is exempted from regulation in the U.S. And so... I guess you get people who think they're plants, but they're actually getting a pretty potent chemical. And then they come into the emergency department not to wander away from the topic, and you don't know how to treat them. And so they could become very sick. And so, yeah, I think it's definitely broadened the range of toxicity that we're seeing with some of these agents. Well, that was really a great chance to talk to Earth and Fire Arrowwood about a wide range of things starting with the history of, of the site and what they aim to do, and, and really finding some common ground between a medical toxicologist and, and others who are observing and writing about and even using some of the substances that we research. I hope that you enjoyed it and that uh, you continue to enjoy things. You can hear the second part of that interview on our next episode, so stay tuned. And uh, once again, if you want to stay in touch about what's going on with us, you can check us out at our website, toxtalk.org, or find us in the iTunes store. Additionally, you can always find us on Facebook or our Twitter feed at ToxTalk. Once again, Tox Talk is a production of the University of Massachusetts Division of Toxicology at the Department of Emergency Medicine. This is Matt Zuckerman signing off. Hey.